Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock Harbor Church Sermon. We're doing it online today. As you know, we're all shut down. We can't meet as a church. The schools won't let us meet. And so we're doing everything online now, and we hope that this helps you. Even though we can't meet, that we can still connect and go through the Scriptures together and learn from the Scriptures. We're in the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 1. And I've entitled the message, How the Desert Grows Us. As we're looking at Moses' life, it's very interesting the parallels of what he was going through with what we're going through right now with this coronavirus crisis. Moses was faced with a crisis. He tried to solve the crisis, but he ended up in failure, obviously. And now he's in Midian. And now we're going to pick up the story where it's 40 years later. Interesting thing about the desert. Moses is going to spend about 40 years in the desert. And when you look in the Bible, the desert or the wilderness is mentioned many times in the Bible. Not all wildernesses mean the desert. But wilderness basically means it's an unoccupied territory by humans. And there's no human development there or whatnot. That's where the term wilderness comes from. However, a desert is a certain kind of wilderness that has features of harsh conditions and a lot of solitude. And it also has a spiritual meaning to it as well. The desert has no water. So it's a place that's devoid of life because of that lack of water. And the same can be true spiritually with people. When a person doesn't know God, they're living in a desert-like condition spiritually. When believers are out of fellowship, they can enter into a desert-like condition. And then when God tests us, he will usually test us by putting us in a desert-like condition in order to train us and get rid of the junk in our lives, to refine us and to get rid of that dross. And obviously, this is how we connect to today. Many of us feel this way with this coronavirus crisis and how the world is handling it. It's basically cut us off socially, We have been cut off from the body of Christ physically in fellowship. We can't enjoy koinonia anymore because all of us have to stay home. And there are similar harsh conditions surrounding us. Some of us can't go to work. Some of us are now being isolated at home. You have to glove up and put all kinds of sanitizer on your hands. And so it's a different way of life than we're used to. It's abnormal. And so this is what the desert is like. The desert is solitude. You don't have any human interaction. The norms of life don't happen in the desert. And a lot of us feel hemmed in. There's nothing to do, nowhere to go. And that's how the desert is. That's how the desert experience is. And many people are extremely isolated because they're single and they don't live with anyone. And so that makes it even worse. It's a desert-like condition. But the good thing about the desert experience that basically we're all going through is that it is meant to grow us. It is meant to purge us of the things God wants out of us and to grow in certain areas that need to be grown. And this is why God typically puts us in a desert condition. So we're all basically going through this period of time. And so what we're going to see in this episode here in Moses' life 
is that God has been training him in the desert for 40 years to prepare him for the next calling in his life. And what we want to take away from this section of scripture is what Moses learned in the desert and what we can learn from it as well as we go through our own deserts. And eventually, the whole point of this was to get Moses ready for the next calling. And the same thing is true for us. Why are we going through this? God is preparing us for the next calling, for the next season of life that he wants us to deal with. And so there's certain parts in us that need to be grown. So let me give you the setting before we get into the scripture. We have now went from Moses killing the Egyptian and murdering him and burying him in the sand and fleeing to Midian. And now he's been in Midian in the desert, which is Saudi Arabia, for 40 years. And he's been just taking care of Jethro's sheep and he's taking care of his flock and just living out there in Saudi Arabian desert area. And so... It's 40 years later, he's been doing this for four decades, and now God is going to take action. Moses is ready, and Israel is ready. And so Moses then, first, when he writes this, is going to write about how Israel got ready, and then he's going to talk about how he got ready. So let's pick up the story in verse 23 of chapter 2. And it says this, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. So basically, after Moses left, the king of Egypt lived for 40 years, basically, after that. And so, the Pharaoh died that wanted Moses dead, wanted to bring Moses to justice because of the murder of the Egyptian overseer. So the point that Moses is bringing out here is that this is now going to allow Moses the protection he needs to return to Egypt to do what God's going to call him to do. So... The fear of capital punishment on Moses is gone. He doesn't have to fear that anymore. So God, through his providence, is opening the door for Moses to come back and to do the confrontation he needs to do with the Pharaoh. And so this is what waiting on the Lord entails. When God tells us to wait, or he forces us to wait in a desert-like condition, there are good reasons for doing so. And that's sometimes hard to trust God when we have to wait for things to develop. But God is working behind the scenes to protect us and to ensure that we can carry out our mission for him. So sometimes, to stay in the will of God, he says, stay put until I tell you I'm ready for you. And so this is what Moses had to learn. And obviously, it became evident to him after he learned that Pharaoh had died and is a protection mechanism for Moses. Now let's move to another part of the scripture. And this is the second point that Moses is going to make. And then it says, Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. So I want to stop right there and explain a little bit what's happening here. Even though Pharaoh had died, it didn't change any of the Egyptians' policies concerning the Jews. The policy of enslavement was still upheld and the hatred for the Jews was still maintained. They were viewed as an existential threat to the Egyptian people's existence and survival. The propaganda had worked well long before this by telling the Egyptians that the Jews mean to join up with neighboring Semitic nations and attack us from within. Well, that was the propaganda and people believed it. 
this made the Egyptian people think that the Jews were plotting to take over and attack the Egyptians. And so people were afraid of them. They didn't want them in their society anymore. So the enslavement went on, and it was so bad that Moses notes that they groaned and cried out as a nation, a collective nation. So when you see groaned and cried out, what Moses is trying to portray is, it's a double expression of how bad the misery was, how bad the oppression was. And then the scriptures say this, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Now this is interesting. The Israelites start praying to God, to Yahweh, to deliver them. But I want you to notice something. God's deliverance didn't come until they asked for help. I want you to note this. God didn't deliver them just because of the affliction. They had been afflicted for years and years and years. And a lot of people ask, well, why didn't God intervene earlier? You know why? The nation wouldn't ask for help. Now, this is the problem typically for Israel. They will get the label stiff-necked. And a lot of their pride, a, a lot of times, won't allow them to ask for help. But the same is true for us individually. What we learn from Israel is about us. We are sometimes stiff-necked, and so we don't ask for it. We figure things out. So, God didn't deliver them because of their affliction. He let it stay on them until it got worse and worse and worse. He acted only when they asked for his help. So this is the, the two narratives that, that are going on. Israel finally gets to the point of asking for help. And then Moses is ready, personally. So when they get to the end of themselves and they run out of their resources and they can't take it anymore, and it's beyond human that they can take this, this is what causes them, as a nation, to be broken and humbled. Then that caused them to finally reach out to the Lord as a corporate nation with their leadership to ask for help. But again, Israel as a nation had to humble themselves. They had to come to the end of themselves and realize they couldn't deliver themselves from the Egyptians. They needed God. And that's an important point. Let me give you an illustration. Let's pretend someone, we're in a house and someone's at the top of the stairs in a home. And we are at the bottom of the stairs. But we are in a wheelchair because our legs don't work. And the person at the top of the stairs asks us and invites us to come to the top of the stairs with him. And our response is, I cannot. My legs don't work. I mean, try as you will. If your legs don't work, you won't be able to climb those stairs. So you responded, I cannot. My legs don't work. And that's the response the person at the top of the stairs is looking for. He's waiting for someone to say, I can't make it up there. Okay? And the person at the top of the stairs says, you're right. You can't make it up here. Your legs don't work. And so the person at the top of the stairs will say, I will have to come down to where you are. And I myself will have to carry you to the top. That is the only way you will get to the top of the stairs is by my help. And that's the principle here with Israel, and it's the principle for us. God is asking us to come to the top of the stairs, 
but he wants us to admit that we can't climb up there. We need him to come down and help us up, not only in salvation, but even for daily life. That's how it is. But let me give you another real example with Israel. The same thing will happen to them in the future. It's the same principle. In the future, they will need deliverance once again as a nation. So when we project out into the future and we look at prophecy, Israel, in the seven-year tribulation, during that time, they make a deal with the Antichrist, and then he breaks that deal at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation, and he goes to destroy every Jew on the planet to prevent the second coming from happening. Because the second coming is predicated on Israel coming to faith in Messiah and calling upon him to rescue them. And it is through this persecution, this vice grip that they get put into by the Antichrist, that their pride will be broken once again so that they will actually call on Jesus to save them, not only spiritually, but but physically as well from being obliterated by the Antichrist. Let me set the scene for you in how this is going to come about. You go back to the Gospels and you can see when Jesus came at the first coming, what he said to Israel. This is in Matthew 23, 37 through 39. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, talking about the temple. For I say to you, and this is a key phrase, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel will have to come to themselves and realize that Jesus, the God-man, is the only one that can rescue them. And this is when they will eventually cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they will during the tribulation. But notice in Daniel 12, 5 through 7, and it says, There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since it was a nation. Referring to the tribulation period. Even to that time, at that time, your people, referring to Israel, shall be delivered. How, though? Delivered from what? It's referring to the Antichrist. Verse 6, And one said to a man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half a time. Basically three and a half years. It's the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And notice this. And when the power of the holy people, Israel has been completely shattered. The idea of shattered come to the end of themselves by severe discipline and judgment. He goes, all these things shall be finished. Notice what it says there, that the purpose of the last three and a half years of the tribulation is to break Israel's power. And that's going to be done through the persecution of the Antichrist. But the breaking of the power is to humble Israel so that they will call upon Jesus to save them much like they're doing in the Exodus. I want you to see the parallels between the Exodus and the second coming because there's a lot of connection points. And notice what Hosea 5.15 also says. 
this is the Messiah talking. He says, I will return again to my place, heaven, till they acknowledge their offense, the rejection of the Messiah. Then they will seek my face, and their affliction, the affliction from the Antichrist, they will earnestly seek me. And then what happens when they seek him? Zechariah points this out in Zechariah 12, 10 through 11. Then they will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. What's the point there? Is that when they finally uh, are, are battered down by the affliction of the Antichrist, they call on Jesus for salvation and to physically rescue them, and then he comes back to Israel and rescues the Jews from the Antichrist. That's what the second coming is about. But what I want you to notice is Israel as a corporate nation has to call on Jesus for help. The same is true what's going on here in the Exodus. The nation went through all these years of enslavement, all this persecution by the Egyptians, and it wasn't until this point in time that they finally are broken in order to call for God to help them. It took them that long. So don't get the idea that, well, God was just sitting back there and letting them suffer. No, he was waiting on them to call for him. And that is a principle and the application that you and I want to take, for at least from this scene. The exodus didn't come because the Jews were in trouble. It came about by asking for help. And this is what you and I have to do as well. It seems simple, but a lot of people don't ask God for help. They try to figure out the situation on their own. They try to navigate through life through their own humanistic wisdom. And if you say, well, you need to pray about that, a lot of times they'll say, oh, goodness, has it come to that? That we have no other options than to pray? Yes, that's the first thing we should do, actually. Don't rely on human wisdom. Don't rely on creating your own provision or, or navigating through these waters, especially with this crisis that we're in. We need to rely on the Lord and how he guides us through things, how he provides through things, and how he gives us wisdom for things. You see these politicians, these ungodly politicians like Rashida Tlaib, where Trump calls on a national day of prayer to pray for the coronavirus and to seek God to ask God to intervene for our nation. And what does these people like Rashida Tlaib do? They tweet out blank prayer. They, she put in an expletive and said blank prayer. And, and it's like, is that how people feel? That they don't want to pray to God? Rashida Tlaib would rather just try to manage it herself? This is bigger than her and she can't deal with it. And so she marginalized all of us who pray to the Lord for help. But that's how our society is getting. It's sick that people would say that. Blank prayer. We don't need to be praying, she said. Unbelievable, this woman. Unbelievable. But a lot of people are like that. Prayer is the last thing on their mind. So when we go to God, he invites us to come to him in Hebrews 4.16 Come before him, before his throne, confidently in the name of the Messiah. And he says, I will give you grace and mercy. I will help you in your time of need. And James 4, 2 says, do not have because you do not ask. And so in this time of crisis, if you're in need of something, go to the Lord. Ask him. 
and he will meet your needs. That's what he promises to do. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we ask it. But we are told to humbly ask for it. And that's the point. So now let's move into the other section as we go through chapter 2. And this is verse 24. And it says this, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So now that they asked for help from God, God is now going to take action. And first of all, this covenant that Moses is referring to is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. It is the main covenant of the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. And still, by the way, valid for today, which has a lot of implications in how we view Israel today. The Abrahamic covenant, as you recall, is what we call a unilateral covenant with the nation of Israel. That means... It's made by God, and it's dependent solely on God to make it come to fruition. It's not dependent on Israel, the second party. That's why it's unilateral. It's God-driven. Well, embedded in the Abrahamic covenant is also the Davidic covenant that comes out of it that promises an eternal Jewish dynasty, dynasty, and it promises a Jewish people that an eternal Jewish king will rule over in the line of David. We know that as Messiah. And we know that this dynasty then will come to full fruition in the Messianic kingdom. Then you have embedded in, in the Abrahamic covenant is the land covenant. In it, it guarantees that the land there in the Middle East that is appropriated to Israel is perpetually theirs. It's no one else's. And even today... Anyone on that land that's not Jewish is a squatter, and that's how it's viewed from the Bible. Only the Jews are allowed to live on that land. It's theirs. And lastly, embedded in the Abrahamic covenant is the new covenant. It is the covenant of blessing of salvation and regeneration and the giving of eternal life to both the Jews and Gentiles through the Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection, which means... God will see it through despite Israel's behavior. All these things will come to fruition. The Davidic land, salvation to Israel particularly. We're experiencing salvation right now. All of these are a guarantee that God will see it through. God is faithful and his promises are always valid. And they never stop. This is why we call ourselves Christian Zionists. Because we believe in the Abrahamic covenant. We support the Jewish people and their right to the land and that God is not finished with them. He has a plan for them due to his promise to them. And one day they will come to faith in the Messiah and in the Messianic kingdom will be the head of the nations during that millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years as Christ rules from David's throne. But now let's turn our attention to the word remembered. It says that God remembered that term, remembered, is a Hebraism. It is a Jewish idiomatic expression, which means that God will take positive action towards Israel and intervene in this situation. Basically, it's the application of the Abrahamic covenant, not God recalling something. It's the application of it. And this is after 430 years. Now the effects of the cursing aspects of the Abrahamic covenant is going to be applied to Egypt. And you know this cursing aspect. I will bless those who bless you. That's the blessing aspect. And I will curse those who curse you. 
So basically, the, this includes protection, which now Israel is being threatened and their survival is. And so basically, God is honoring the terms of the Abrahamic covenant. God promises the punishment of a nation that hurts Israel. And he promises that he will deliver Israel with great possessions from that nation that persecutes them. So you can see this in, with Egypt. You can see this with Nazi Germany. And in the future, he will deliver Israel from the beast form of government that the Antichrist will control. And this is why it concerns all of us believers when we see things that our nation's doing sometimes to Israel, like trying to divide their land and make them give up territories that only belongs to them. We, shouldn't, we, don't, we don't support that. We have to bless the Jews, bless Israel, in order for our nation to be blessed. That's God's foreign policy. And let's then look to now verse 25. In verse 25, it says, And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. They're pleased for help now. Their humility is what God responded to. He simply would not respond, even when they were enslaved so many years, because they wouldn't humble themselves and call on him. But now they're doing it. Now they're calling upon the Lord to make good on his promises in the Abrahamic covenant. They all knew about the Abrahamic covenant through oral tradition. They knew that God was creator and the deliverer and the one who made a promise to their forefather, Abraham, which carried through, through Isaac, Jacob, and then, and then 12 sons. And so they're going upon that, that promise. And interesting things that, that they already knew about God and Moses gives hints of this, especially in the names of God found in, in early part of Genesis. They knew that God was Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. They didn't know all the facets of what Yahweh meant, because that's the personal name of God. But they knew God was Yahweh Elohim, which meant he was Lord of Lords. He was above all. They knew the term El, which is power or might, the creator of all. They knew his name El Shaddai. God Almighty. And they knew his name as El Rai, the God who lives and sees all things. They knew the idea of Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. They knew the name Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. So just not only the Abrahamic covenant, but the idea of the terms that came from the patriarchs, they knew these aspects of God, that God is Almighty, He's the creator. He has the power to do things. And he has the power to provide. He has the power to heal. He sees all things. He sees our affliction. Therefore, we can trust him to intervene into our situation. And so they're relying on these theological concepts for God to intervene with them. So now let's move to chapter 3 which deals with the call of Moses. So now Israel's ready. They're in a position now to be rescued. And so we have to turn to the other narrative. What about the deliverer, which will be the agent that God will use? What about Moses? Start in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Now, interesting thing about that, Jethro was a high priest of that area of Midian. And many times when you look at Jethro, he's a parallel with Melchizedek. 
He's not Melchizedek, but he's a high priest like Melchizedek. And so it's interesting to see some of these parallels that Abraham had and now Moses has. And so I want to make several points here about the time Moses had in the desert for these last 40 years. And one of the main issues is time. This is 40 years later after the last episode. Moses has spent 40 years in the desert being refined and purified. And I'll talk a little bit more about refinement later, but I want you to focus right now on the 40 years. What is that about? Because you'll see 40 years all over the Bible. 40 years in Hebrew represents a time of testing and the hardships one must endure to become more spiritually aware. That's what typically 40 means in the Bible. And Moses had been tested for 40 years in order to endure and become spiritually aware of what he lacked and the strengths he had. And again, you'll see 40 all over the Bible. It's, and again, uh, you'll see with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus that fasted for 40 days in the desert. You'll see the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years. You'll see Ezekiel laid on his side, right side for 40 days to bear the iniquity of Judah's sins. And three kings reigned for 40 years each, Saul, David, and Solomon. Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days before David defeated him. And God destroyed every living thing on the earth by flooding the world for 40 days. Moses spent 40 years in a desert learning about himself and going through a 40-year trial to grow him in areas that he, he needed to be grown in and put to death the things that needed to be put to death. I like what J. Oswald Sanders once said, time is no object with God who demands quality at all costs. There is therefore no point in chafing under the discipline of the training years or in endeavoring to take a shortcut. It will, talking about the shortcut, inevitably prove to be a cul-de-sac. So, 40 years is what it took to get the quality that God wanted out of Moses, to get the character he needed, to get Moses up to speed in his walk with the Lord. So you think about it for you and I, we will be put in the desert for however long it takes to get the quality out of us that God is looking for and to get rid of some of the things he wants out of us. So don't try to do a shortcut. Don't try to run from the desert. Don't try to go anywhere. Stay in the desert and learn the lesson. And think about this. Even though God was with him in the desert, God never spoke to Moses at that time. And so that's interesting as well. And so there's periods of times in our life that God's with us, but he won't speak to us. It's a time of testing. By faith, do we trust that God's with us even though he doesn't talk to us? And that's what Moses went through. Again, another way of looking at the number 40 is that it's a divine appointment of time that one must go through. It's a time of testing, but it's a, it's a period of time. And most of the time, the work God does in us takes that time. It's not overnight. It tends to be a very slow process. And so we have to be very patient with the process, not only with ourselves, but for others as well. 
You have to give grace to other people as they're in the process of their desert life. This is what Moses needs. Who knows what you and I need? But it'll take whatever God thinks it should take. And when he's done with it, then we're ready. See, this task that Moses was facing is extremely immense. There's no body in human history that did what he did on a human level. And so he had to be prepped for this. Therefore, the implication is that there are no shortcuts in the desert. There's no way out. If one tries to go to a shortcut to get out of the desert, it will lead you to nowhere. Many times you will find yourselves at a dead end, and that forces you actually to go back to the desert when you try to leave the desert. And a lot of believers, and unbelievers as well, spend their whole lives running from the desert experience, only to find that each time they run from it, that they eventually run into a brick wall and they have to go back. And the lesson is this. If you and I are put into the desert, like even currently right now with this coronavirus, and we don't cooperate properly, the door of opportunity for the next calling may never open up to us. If you go into full protest mode about what's happening in your life, about the desert condition of your life, you will stay there until you accept it and learn the lesson. And so the admonition is, figure this out, figure why God has put you in the desert, get rid of the things you need to get rid of, and build up the things he's showing you that you need to, to grow. Then, when you have learned this lesson, and he's ready for you, he will open another door for you, a door of ministry to serve him at a greater level. The other thing I want to point out, too, is this. Moses' identification with the Hebrews. And this is important because it's a typology. Notice that Moses is identifying with the Hebrews by taking the role of a shepherd. And we talked about this last time. A shepherd is a servant leader. He has to lead the flock, not drive the flock. And this is something no Egyptian would ever do because shepherds were associated with a very low class of people in terms of socioeconomics. They were vagabonds, homeless, they were repugnant, they smelled, and the Egyptians could not stand shepherds. The person individually, the shepherd, was grungy, he was out with his sheep all the time, he smelled real bad, and a lot of the shepherds didn't have the best morals anyway. And so they were looked down upon by the Egyptians. But Moses has cut ties with his old Egyptian life, that of him being an Egyptian prince, and is now identifying with his people who are considered the lowest of the low, the Hebrews, by the Egyptians. Therefore, when Moses goes back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh, he will do so as a lowly Jew. He will do so as a shepherd. And that's extremely important in the typology. What do I mean by that? Think about this typology. A typology is something that's happening with a character and it projects into the future of another character at a greater level. Think about this. Moses left the palace and the riches of the kingdom of Egypt to come down. You'll see that it uses the term, he came down to the Hebrews. So he comes down to the Hebrews when he's going to see all what was happening. And the idea is that he gave up all in order to identify with his people, the Jews. 
And this is in order to deliver them. He has to deliver them as a Jew, not as an Egyptian. This is a picture of Christ for us. It's a typology. Moses will have many, many typologies about the Messiah. And I want you to think about the same thing. Jesus left heaven, the glories of heaven, the palace of heaven, so to speak, the kingdom of heaven, to come down to us, smelly sheep, disgusting sheep, in order to identify with us as humans. And this is seen in the incarnation. And the incarnation, we celebrate every Christmas, you know, we talk about this, that Jesus became a human. He took on an additional nature and he gave up all to do that which hearkens to what is called, in theological terms, the kenosis, which means that the second person of the Trinity gave up his independent use of his divine attributes and put them into submission to the Father. So you have the incarnation and the kenosis happening, which Moses is prefiguring. He gave up all to identify with the Hebrews. Jesus gave up all, took on an additional nature to identify with us, and then to make the sacrifice for us. And he had, to, he had to become human to make the sacrifice for us. And this is part of what we understand as the God-man. Also note that the flock is not his, which indicates that Moses was financially destitute. He had probably been one of the richest men on the planet and now is being reduced to a poverty-stricken situation. Moses has turned into nothing but a hired worker, a hired hand in one of the lowest professions you could be employed in that day. And this is where we get the idea of servanthood from Moses. Notice that Moses is an employee of Jethro. For the first time in his life, he serves another person. Because before that, in Egypt, people served him. Now, for 40 years, Moses has learned to be a servant. And now he's ready. And I'll tell you this on, on, on another note for us. Believers who haven't been taught or understand servanthood or resist being a servant, they resist getting into the trenches, they resist getting in their, their hands dirty, or they want to be seen by others, but they don't want to be involved in the messiness of working with people, people's problems and their lives. They tend to gravitate to the front of the stage, the public side of ministry, and are less involved with the messiness of people's lives. They resist helping individuals in their walk with the Lord. They only like the parts of ministry where they don't get dirty, so to speak. So when you look at servanthood, you'll see a lot of believers who won't get in the trenches, won't do the hard work. They only want to be seen by people. That's when you can tell when someone's a servant or not. Are they willing to get their hands dirty, to get involved in people's lives and to help those people? Well, a servant will. A servant will go and try to help the sheep do whatever he can or she can to help these people out. And so, this is a lesson for all of us. See, people who are not servants, they like the happy and easy parts of ministry, the fun parts of ministry. But the hard work, behind-the-scenes work, no, they're not for that. Forget it. They say that's, that's for someone else. Um, they're above it for some reason. They can't get their hands dirty. So let's return to the scriptures. And it says, And he led the flock back 
or to the back of the desert. This would be the idea of the west side of the desert of Arabia. Okay, it's just barren, nothing there. And the way they they talked about west side and east side, um, a Jew would face east to determine direction. We sometimes face north, but a Jew would face east in relation to where his home Jethro was. So Jethro is more to the east, and then Moses is going west. He's taking the flock west. But what I want you to see in this is that when Moses would do this, he was in a solitary existence out there with the sheep. He might be out there for weeks with the sheep by himself, just him and the sheep. And notice that Moses, for 40 years, is alone most of the 40 years in the desert. And so... This desert experience sometimes is a forced isolation on purpose. You think about this. Even Jesus went into the desert and he was alone. Remember that? To be tempted, he was alone. And then the the ultimate desert that Jesus went through is the cross, the desert condition of that. He was alone on the cross. All the disciples fled from him when he got arrested. Do you remember that? Isolation. Paul, when he was being trained was in the desert of Arabia. He went to this very location for three years by himself and was taught by Jesus himself, according to Paul. Why is isolation needed many times? A lot of times we say we shouldn't be isolated, but there are times where we need to be isolated, where we don't have a human to talk to, there's no noise, no distractions in life. And basically, the idea of the isolation is that the person can get one-on-one with God. That God can be one-on-one with you. Now, notice in the isolation, God wasn't talking to him. And so there's a lot of misnomers today about people getting alone and then they want God to talk to them. The pattern in Scripture is when you're alone, you won't be talked to. You'll have to trust that God's with you when you're alone. And so that's what Moses was going through. That's the pattern of Scripture. And so what God was showing Moses, or doing for Moses, is he stripped him of all his support, stripped him of all his pride, stripped him of using his strengths, no crutches anymore, no, no worldly mechanisms of how to cope with life. And that's what the desert does. You're alone with God and you're stripped of any resources that could help you cope. And that's important. And when you and I are in that desert experience, it'll appear or feel that we're alone. And that we're without any earthly support. So think about this coronavirus and what it's doing to people. It's isolating people. makes them feel alone. Even though they're not alone, God's with the believers, right? But they, they have lost now their earthly support around with other people, their job, whatever, their normal way of life. He stripped that away from them. Why is he doing that? Well, it's not to make us feel isolated, even though that can happen. It's to get us one-on-one with him. It's supposed to teach us that we are not alone, that God's with us, really. And for you to see that by faith, that we have support from God. He is with us. But he takes all those creature comforts that we have away, those other worldly supports, so that we can truly see That he is with us, and he is the only one that is providing for us. That's why he does a desert experience with us. And so, right now, you have your support network removed from you. Your job, other social structures or whatnot. Why? What does he want to teach us during this time? That all we have is him, 
and he wants to just strip us of everything so we can see that. And he is the only one that provides security, blessing, provision, and his presence. In this desert condition, you won't know where you are. You won't know exactly where you're supposed to be. So a lot of people even today say, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't know what I'm, where I'm supposed to go. I'm at a loss. Good. Because it's at that point that God says, finally, you're not being self-directed. I'm going to direct you. And that's what he's doing with Moses. He's going to direct Moses to meet with Moses, finally, after 40 years. And the idea of the desert, what it's trying to tell us is there really is no way back to the former life you and I had. It's to move us forward. It's to get rid of the old life and to move us forward. And rest assured, God knows what type of desert we all need. There are different deserts for different people, right? And how long we stay there is up to Him. But the point of the desert is we don't know where to go, what to do, because we have to rely on His guidance. That's what he's trying to show all of us in this coronavirus. What else does solitude teach uh, Moses and what does it teach us? Is that security with God is found with him and not man. And this is an important point. It's a leadership point, but we're all leaders in some form or fashion. Most of the great leaders of the Bible spent time alone with God including the Messiah himself. He would go off to pray by himself, remember? Leaders do lead a very lonely life, and that's just a fact. Moses will lead a very lonely life. And when you see the prophets, and you see the apostle Paul, and you see the disciples, a lot of them were leading a very lonely life. They were in isolation most of the time. Now, What the desert teaches is how to cope with that isolation. And the reason is that servant leaders are typically out in front leading. And there typically isn't anyone with them out there because it's real scary. And so no one joins the leader because it's just too scary. So good leaders are made from being able to cope with isolation. Those who resist leadership and don't want to be a leader will never understand this. They sit back and the armchair quarterback leaders, but they can never relate to the pressure of isolation a leader feels. Many folks don't step up in leadership, not only with ministry or with their, even their own family, because they haven't developed the strength of character to be alone in your leadership because they haven't allowed the desert to train them to prepare for being alone and only having God with them. As you will see, during Moses' tenure as leader of Israel, he will be challenged, he will be questioned, his life will be threatened, he will be accused, he will be criticized, he will be hated, and he will be betrayed by the Israelites. And with all these attacks, he will have to stand there alone with only God with him through it all. That's leadership. People don't like being attacked, so they uh, will back off of leadership. And what you'll see is that every time Moses is attacked, he's alone in the attack. 
They're coming after him. They want to kill him many times. It's crazy, but that's leadership. And how is he going to manage this? Well, God prepared him. 40 years in the desert, he was alone with God. And that's all he had was God. And that's all he needed. He needed to see that, that he could stand alone if God was with him. Uh, even when his own people turned on him. He had to learn that leaders are alone many times in their life, and that is the only way you can lead many times. The desert taught him that he didn't need people to affirm him, throw him a parade, support him. He didn't need a pat on his back from anyone. He didn't need a constant affirmation from people. He didn't need to worry about making people happy. And he didn't buckle under the pressure of people making demands on him. He never catered to the people to get them to like him. The desert taught Moses how to be secure in the Lord. And the desert drove out all of his insecurities in needing to perform for others. So this is a very mature and a very freeing position to be in. He needed that for what he would go through as a leader. Um, this would allow him just to do exactly what God called him to do and not be afraid of people. He feared God rather than man. So that's our takeaway for us. The desert is barren. It's waterless. It's lonely. It's a place that we want to avoid, but it is good for us. And as you can see, the desert was not meant to destroy Moses, nor is it meant to destroy us. Rather, God uses the desert experience to get rid of parts of us to get us trained up in what we need to have. And again, maybe you've been in the desert before. Maybe you're in one right now. And there's been some really dry times in your life. Right now it might be a dry time in your life. Loss of a job that you really enjoyed. Loss of a spouse maybe. Loss, loss of health. Loss of a relationship. Uh, some people were in jail at some point in time. So they experienced a desert-like condition there. But that's what it's for. And I want you to think about this. The ultimate desert experience is hell. And then eventually the lake of fire. That's the ultimate desert experience. Where obviously there is the heat of fire and the solitude is both there. And I want you to think about this. Jesus suffered a desert-like experience. Not only being tempted in a desert by the devil, but on the cross. Jesus suffered the worst desert experience anyone could possibly imagine. The desert of being separated from the Father for our sake. This is why he said, I thirst. That's what you would do in a desert. You thirst because of the heat and the dryness. There's no water. And spiritually, he says this after being separated from the Father. And after suffering the wrath of God and taking on our punishment for our sins from 12 o'clock to 3... There was darkness then that covered the land. You remember that? No one could see. And it's the same thing in the desert. Where do you go? What's the path? Can't see. Where, you know, you, you get lost out there. And so darkness covers the land and prevents people from seeing. And so this is why he cries out when this happens, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so folks, we need to understand that Jesus went to the ultimate desert for us. He knows what it feels like to be rejected, lonely, to be seen as a nobody, to be hated, to experience the onslaught of Satan's temptations in the desert, and experience the cross. 
So all of us have went through deserts in our lives and possibly we're all going through a desert experience right now. Another takeaway I wanted to think about it as far as the application is, once you go through your desert, once you go through God purging things out of you and building up things in you, what's the next thing? The next thing, the next call you will see with Moses is he's called to go retrieve Israel and bring them to the very place that he was in. And you might say, what's the spiritual application for that? It's because of this. Moses, in his desert experience, has the experience to help Israel be purged and to build them up as well. So the ultimate call after you go through your desert is to go help someone in their desert where you can say, been there, done that. I can tell you how to navigate through your desert and I can help you. And so the idea is you pay it forward. What you've learned in the desert, you go and help others deal with their desert and how to grow and learn in that area. That's the idea here. And so the desert's not just simply for you and me. The desert experience is for others as well. So if you went through certain hardships in your life, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a loved one, loss of a job, or whatever, a divorce, separation, whatever that might be, you use that to help others who are going through something similar. And that's what we learned from Moses. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.